Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How we doing? What's up, man? How we doing this morning? My name's Austin Clemens. I've been a table leader here for the past few years. Uh, it's been an honor to hang out with you guys, be a part of this environment, be a part of this culture. Uh, first thing, quick announcement. Andy, do we got a slide that we could throw up on the screen. Uh, NCAA tournament action is coming at us here soon. Uh, we'll do man challenge edition. I hear there's a prize for first place. Um, no participation trophies, so first, first place is the only one who gets a prize this year. There will be a link sent out. I'd uh, love to see you guys participate. Uh, definitely some bragging rights on the line. This morning, uh, Chris asked me to highlight one of our men's values. Uh, which is to develop a next step of faith. What does it look like for each of us as men to develop a next step of faith? Uh, for me, looking back in my life, I mean, there are times where it felt like there's huge leaps and bounds, and there are other times where uh, I'm just handed a microphone on a Thursday morning uh, getting to talk about Jesus. Uh, for me, I was a college athlete. I played baseball, uh, and there came a time where uh, my dreams of being an MLB professional player weren't going to pan out. And so a big gap in my life existed at that point. A lot of my time, a lot of my energy uh, came or was put into baseball. And so I had all this time I've been growing in my competence and my confidence of who Jesus is and what that meant about me, my identity in him. Uh, but I never had the leash to uh, build my life on my own. You know, there were schedules put together for me. I was told when to work out, when to practice. Uh, but I was really given the opportunity in that season to build my life on the Word of God. And so that path, that next step, wasn't a straight line. There were a lot of men that came, ar- came around me, that discipled me, uh, pointed me in the right direction towards Christ. Uh, but that was a huge next step of faith for me. Uh, today, what that looks like, I recently got married back in November, praise God. Um, and now it looks like, man, how do I sacrificially love my wife um, to, to the full, sacrificially like Christ, you know. Um, Christ gave his life for me, right? He um, gave everything up for me regardless of what I could or couldn't do for him. And um, that's the way I'm called to love and lead my wife. And this morning, um, a couple of things that have been on my heart is we've been going through this series at church, uh, talking about confession, um, is that our God is a God of healing and a God of reconciliation. And so I pulled out a couple of verses for us to think about as men in this room are considering their next step of faith. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. These are the words of Christ. Therefore, if you are offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. 
God places reconciliation over worshiping him. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now there are a few things that I know are going on in this room and uh, need to be addressed just from talking to other table leaders. Struggles that men are going through in this room, you're not alone. Alcoholism, man, are you losing self-control? Are you um, not loving your family right? Are you uh, losing control of your body? Man, what does that next step of faith look like for you? Do you need to remove the alcohol? Do you need to lean on a brother? Do you need to confess? Pornography addiction, are we um, going to the laptop instead of pursuing our, pursuing our wives? Maybe this morning we need to confess how we're getting access to that material rather than um, hiding it uh, in our homes. At our table, man, we've got five guys with pregnant wives at home. So, um, yeah, that's a lot. Um, so for us, there's been a lot of talk about what does it look like to be the spiritual leader of our homes. Um, yes, if uh, you're looking to have kids, maybe you need to join our table. Um, and if you're kind of past that stage or you're not sure you're ready for that, um, don't drink the water. Finally, I know there needs to be forgiveness that takes place in this room, that we need to seek forgiveness from another. Maybe uh, there's a sin, maybe there was a situation where we wronged somebody, and uh, we're still stuck in the guilt and the shame of that relationship uh, from that wrongdoing of our own. Man, it takes a lot of confidence in a man to know his identity in Christ, to be able to own his sin, and to humbly ask for forgiveness. Man, that's a hard thing to do, um, but few things make us stand out as salt of the world, like seeking forgiveness. Uh, something that was put on my heart is that he may not restore the relationship, but God will restore you, and that is something that's worth pursuing. This morning, we got Mr. Ronnie Cordray teeing it up for us this morning. There he is. I was right. waiting for the, very quiet. So Ronnie, you've been a pastor for a while now, so I assume you kind of just got it all figured out. Is that right? Let me tell you something. Ministry would be so easy if it wasn't for dealing with people. I can, I can imagine that. That's true. So in this, this morning we've been talking about a next step of faith. What is a next step of faith that you are pursuing right now? Well, I'll answer that, but five guys at your table? Five. Wife's pregnant. Uh, are, that's are a you, lot. Are you in that? I don't know. Time will tell. <laughs> I've only been married like a few months, man. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go there. Next step of faith. So I've got a couple next steps of faith. I've got a physical next step of faith. Um, I'm doing, with one of my best friends, September 23rd, we're doing Half Iron Man up in New York. Casual. So, yeah. I'm just going to stretch real good. That's the next step of faith. Um, my current next step of faith is to lose 17 pounds. I've been um, eating a lot this winter. Eating good. Yeah. And it's not good. Um, 
But my spiritual step, next step of faith would be, I've got three guys. Um, one is my barber. And, man, it's, I am trying to have spiritual conversations with him every three weeks. And he just keeps taking us out in left field talking about aliens and stuff. And I, I, it's just hard. That's uncomfortable. It is. It's very uncomfortable. But um, I'm just going to keep, that's my next set of faith is to keep refusing to talk about aliens and to keep talking about Jesus. And then two guys at the gym where I work out, they're, um, it appears they don't have faith. So sure. trying to have that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let me pray for you and you can get going. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this man. Thank you for his leadership in uh, developing uh, this culture. God, would you use him this morning? Uh, would you help him to uh, just depend on your word, God? That, that is where the power comes from, God. Would you just help him to be dependent on you this morning, Lord? Thank you for this man, and would you just uh, use his words uh, to impact us to uh, pursue you further? It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Austin. Great to be with you guys this morning. Hey, incidentally, man, I love, I love us meeting on Thursday mornings like this. I, I'm very humbled. Every time I walk through here, uh, I'm paid to walk in here. You guys are not, and it's humbling to see that you guys are choosing to get up early. Right now, as we're meeting, Chris Morgan is over at Northeast Christian Church speaking to a group of dudes who started an environment just like this. Um, because of some guys coming over here and seeing what we're doing. And, and I celebrate that. We're on the same team. And so I just think that's, that's really cool. Yeah, it's worth clapping for. You know, I was very humbled and offended at the same time with some of the requests you guys uh, sent in this week, uh, song requests, whether it be uh, Josh Groban's You Lift Me Up or Bette Midler's Wind Beneath My Wings. Uh, Aerosmith, dude looks like a lady. Uh, what else? Lady, lady A, uh, like a lady. You know, you guys know how to butter a dude up. I'll tell you that. But I digress. Let me ask you guys a question. By by raise of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the name Chuck Templeton? Okay. By raise of hand, how many of you ever heard of the name Bron Clifford? Crickets. How about Billy Graham? Billy Graham? Hey, let's do that again. Billy Graham? Some of y'all were like, I ain't raising my hand for nothing. Uh, in 1945, all three of these guys had this extraordinary gift of preaching the gospel to crowds of thousands across the U.S. in 1945. They all came out of the gates on fire for the cause of Christ. In, um, and that was in 1945. So my question for you is these three guys all came out of the gate on fire for God. So why have we never heard of two of those three guys? I'll tell you, it's simple. In 1950, Chuck Templeton, just five years after he came out of the gates on fire, left ministry, had left ministry altogether, had actually decided that he didn't believe in Christ anymore. Just five years. By 1954, Bron Clifford 
had left his wife and two Downs syndrome children. He died alone in a rundown hotel in Texas from cirrhosis of the liver. He died a used car salesman, nothing wrong with that. And one of the guys that knew him described it this way, said, Braun died unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Fellas, within 10 years of these three men coming out of the gates on fire and preaching to standing room only crowds across the United States, only one of these men was still on track for Christ. Billy Graham. He preached the gospel to over 215 million people in over 185 different countries and territories. He lived to be 99, and towards the very end of his life, he was asked this question. Billy, how did you go all of those decades, not years, decades, living on the road, largely away from your wife and kids, in hotel room after hotel room. How did you go all those decades without having any moral failures or embarrassing your family or God? You know what his answer was? It was four words. I always traveled scared. I always traveled scared. Now, at first glance, that can sound like, well, Ronnie, I thought Scripture said we don't have a spirit of fear, uh, but a spirit of, yeah, that's true. But I'll tell you what, Billy Graham embraced. He embraced 1 Peter 5.8, which says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is always prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. A dude doesn't go decades on the road without moral failure, because I tell you right now, it wasn't because he wasn't tempted or had opportunities. Dude doesn't do that without being zoomed in on a verse like that. When Chris Morgan teed up this Life of Joseph series, he shared three things that Joseph was on point with, and this, one of those was, was morally, that Joseph was on point morally, and this morning that's 100% what we're diving into in Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 to 23. You can turn with me if you have that. But before we jump into that, I want to share a couple quick bullet points leading up to this passage this morning about Joseph. One is Joseph had received this special robe, this fancy robe from his father, and in his immaturity, he flaunted it every chance he got with his other brothers who none of them had a, a robe, much less a fancy robe. So that had happened. He had had these wacky, crazy dreams, and he was dumb enough to share them with his brothers and even his dad. These dreams uh, basically said this. They said that his family was going to bow down to him. His dad even gave him a hard time about that. Well, his brothers didn't like the robe. They definitely didn't like his dreams or him interpreting his dreams. And so his brothers sold him into slavery. They, they threw him in a pit. They actually were, were going, what should we do with him? I mean, kill him was one of the options. And they ended up settling as this band of gypsies was coming through 
coming past, they were like, oh, let's just let's sell them to these gypsies, sell them into slavery. So they sell their brother into slavery. He ends up in a foreign land, Egypt. It's not where he's from. It's not where he lived. And then this guy Potiphar, who was the emperor's um, captain of the guards and his, one of his officials, uh, Potiphar purchases Joseph as a slave to be his master. He's named Potiphar's personal attendant, and he's put in charge of everything, not out of the gate, but just quickly, this guy Potiphar noticed like, hey, whatever, whatever Joseph does, God blesses, including things in my household. So he puts him in charge of literally everything, professionally and even personally. Scripture tells us the Lord was with Joseph, and Scripture also tells us the Lord made everything he did successful. Now we're ready for this morning's passage. We're going to jump in, and, and, and by the way, guys, man, I am, I'm excited. This, this is a new Bible. My 17-year-old daughter gave me this about six weeks ago, wasn't my birthday. She, I said, man, that's awesome. I said, what's this for? She goes, just because. Um, so it's the Christian Standard Bible. Never read that standard before, but here we go. All right. Verse, we're going to pick up in verse 6, the last part, actually. It says this. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Think Man Challenge Fitness guys for a minute. If you're in Man Challenge Fitness, raise your hand for a minute. All right. That's who we're talking about. Joseph was, <laughs> was well-built and handsome. <laughs> now, joking aside, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I can scan a room like this this morning, and I can think, man, that dude, he better be really careful. He's, he's very handsome. That dude's chiseled GQ. He better be extra careful. That dude, yeah, he's good. Um, <laughs> That dude, he better be as smart as Steve Jobs, not a chance, right? If I'm not careful, I can think that a message like this morning only has to do with a dude who is handsome and well-built. And truth be told, if we lined up one after one of us, several hundred men in this room this morning, there's only a very few of you in this room who this message would qualify or, or be applicable to. But here's the thing. Guys, that's so messed up, that type of thinking. Here's why. The truth is, sin, more specific, sexual sin, it doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care if you're well-built and handsome. It doesn't care if you can't see your toes over your butt. It doesn't care. And in fact, in today's culture, looks are attractive as men, but power and titles can be even more alluring to women. You know, you ever see a bombshell of a lady next to some Magoo-looking dude? Right? Let's be honest. I don't think it's because he's some awesome lover. So it's important that we hear it doesn't matter 
where you're at on this spectrum physically looks wise. The enemy's always prowling, looking to devour you and to devour me on this topic. Verse 7, it says, After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. Potiphar's wife looked longingly. Another word for that is infatuated. She was infatuated with this young dude who was well-built and handsome. Sleep with me. Come to bed with me is how the NIV says it. This was, fellas, this was well past flirting. In fact, it just bypassed flirting. And it wasn't, wasn't code terms. I mean, she was like, I want to have sex with you. Let's go. Verse 8 to 9. But he refused. He refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house, in his house, and has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in his house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Joseph refused. Joseph refused. That's such a powerful and significant phrase, fellas. Joseph refused. I mean, in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, I'm not going to read it all, but if you have some time today or this rest of the week, you might want to just read chapters 5 to 7. It's very sobering. A couple words I want to throw out, pop out from this. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as a wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? A woman came to meet him dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. She lurks at every corner. Come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. She seduces him with her, her persistent pleading. She lures with her flattering talk he follows her impulsively verse 10 although she spoke to joseph day after day he refused to go to bed with her now one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there she pestered him day after day pestered him day after day but Joseph refused he stood his ground and then it says that he went into the house honestly to do his work even though she was pestering him day after day he was staying focused he's like man I got a job to do um and then in verse uh, none of the household servants was there now it doesn't say but based on Joseph's morality that we see as a way of life as a commitment, I believe it's safe to say that Potiphar's wife set this up as a trap. None of the household servants was there. This was a house that always had people there. 
because it was a place of power. Verse 12. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. It says she grabbed him. She grabbed him. It doesn't say while they were hanging out together, her hand gently and accidentally glazed over the front of him that made him wonder. No. So she grabbed him. Very aggressive. She grabbed onto his cloak. Now, what's a cloak? It's basically a a jacket, a coat, an overcoat. You know, a, a cloak was a loose garment worn over clothing, Um, typically worn like we wear a jacket, you know, in the winter to protect from weather. So it's safe to say that this shows because it says she grabbed his cloak, his garment. So it's logical to believe like he had just walked in there, right? You don't take your jacket off outside in the cold. You wait till you get inside. So it's safe to say that like she basically jumped him, grabbed his cloak, not sure if she was literally hiding behind the door or around the corner but when she said sleep with me come to bed with me it was obvious she was not going to let go of his cloak and it says he escaped and ran out of the house it's powerful Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment and ran outside. So what's just happened here? She's been rejected over and over again now physically he runs out she's been rejected and um, she's embarrassed and now she's turning to doing what someone who has been rejected and embarrassed is capable of doing right she lied she made up a story completely lied verse 16 to 18 She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me, but when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. Now she's angry and wants revenge for being rejected. I can only imagine the justification that's the story that's raveling in her mind as she's waiting for her husband to get home and she's just clenching his cloak tighter and tighter because she's like, you don't reject me. You're a slave. Verse 19 and 20. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me he was furious and had him thrown into prison where the prison, king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. Now, we don't know if Potiphar's job required him to work 
before the sun's up and after the sun's down. We don't know if he was unengaged in his home. We don't know if he was unavailable emotionally to his wife. But what we do know is, uh, is that he was a man of power. He was the captain of the guards. They don't, they don't give that role to a pushover. And so this guy was used to walking in a room and be like, hey, you do that, you do that, you do that. He was used to doing that. So we don't know. Maybe he was operating his marriage that way. Maybe he was treating his wife in the same way that worked well for him as captain of the guard. We don't know that. But what we do know is that he responds to his wife the same exact way that you and I would respond to our wife or to any husband uh, who has invaded your home or your wife has told you invaded your home and trying to have their way with your wife. Says he was furious. Says he had him put in prison. Verse 21 to 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. I want us to pause for a few moments, and I want us to focus on answering this question. What can we learn specifically from Joseph's morality? What can we learn from Joseph's morality? We can pull out of scripture a couple things in particular. One is that Joseph had restraint. Verse 8, but he refused. Verse 10, he refused to go to bed with her. Other in verse 10, he refused to even be with her. He had restraint. Second thing we can learn is Joseph was trustworthy. Verse 8 to 9, he trusts me to protect you, not prey on you. My master, he, he doesn't concern himself with anything. And in fact, he's given me access to everything. Just not you. In fact, he wants me, he trusts me to protect you while he's gone. Not prey on you. Joseph was trustworthy. Luke 12, 48, when much is given, much is expected. And Joseph knew this. He knew that, um, that a lot was expected of him because a lot of authority had been entrusted with him. He was trustworthy. How could I do this immense evil, such a wicked thing? Joseph was trustworthy. Third thing is Joseph ran from sin to honor God. I want to emphasize those last two words, to honor God. Joseph ran from sin. Verse 9, how could I sin against God was his exclamation statement. This was his response to being propositioned by a beautiful woman with power and resources. Joseph's lens was so vertically focused that he did not run from sin simply to honor his boss. 
He knew his audience was God and honoring God was his why. That's significant, fellas. And I'll get to that here in just a moment. See, if you pursue running from sexual sin to honor your wife, if you're married or if you're single, uh, to a girlfriend or to a girl um, that you go on a date with, though this sounds admirable and even biblical, it it has the, the enemy has a sneaky ability to take what is admirable and turn it into a conditional pursuit. But if you avoid sinning to honor God, that gives the enemy no room to mess with you and to make it conditional. It makes it unconditional because God will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He will never reject you. When he is your why, even when she disappoints you, even when she lets you down, even when she makes you mad, even when she turns you down, that's a wife only, not a girlfriend, you don't waver in your pursuit of holiness. Joseph ran from sin to honor God. Joseph also ran from sexual immorality. Typically, when a man runs from something, it means what? It means he's a sissy, right? Dude runs from conflict. It's like, dude, man up, grow a sit, right? Guy runs from danger, right? Remember here, Nate Bergazzi saying he's very strategic. He puts himself on the other side of the bed to where his wife's in the doorway so that he can push her as a scare tactic, right? Nah, it's weak. But in this instant, this type of running that Joseph displays, it's not him being a sissy. It's the opposite. There is wisdom in this type of running from sexuality. There is devotion. There is courage. There is an obedient posture. Verse 12, it says, she grabbed him. In other words, she caught him by his coat and then it says, but he escaped. You don't escape by just sort of trying, right? Oh, no, he grabbed me. No. He escaped and he ran out of the house. He ran out of the house. He didn't walk. He didn't jog. He didn't skip. He didn't crawl. He didn't even start to run and then realize it's his favorite Patagonia jacket and then it's cold outside, so I better turn around and go grab it real quick. No, it says he turned around, he ran. He ran away from sexual morality. Ephesians 5.3 says this, it says, and among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual morality. Joseph modeled that verse well. We can learn from that. Joseph also possessed moral authority. Moral authority, I'll give you a brief definition, it's becoming a leader worth following from God's perspective. It's becoming a leader worth following from God's perspective. Some of you are a leader because of the title next to your name, or because of your position. But moral authority is different. Moral authority is saying it doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what, whether you, it doesn't matter. 
You're a leader worth following from God's perspective. That's moral authority. And Joseph uh, developed moral authority from intentionally being obedient to pursuing God's best as his way of life, regardless the cost. Joseph's moral authority is, is not specifically in any one single verse that we just read. But if we read Genesis 37 to 50 chapters, I'm speaking, which is the life of Joseph, um, we see his thumbprint, this thumbprint of moral authority wrapped throughout the whole thing. What a great thing to be known for. He had moral authority. And can you imagine if people that know you, they said, man, I could say a lot of things about this dude, but probably the thing that sticks out the most is he has moral authority. I remember Chris Burke a couple years ago talking about he was at a concert, country concert. Um, I, don't, I guess that was before Christ. And, uh, and I might get the details right, but I remember this. He said he was there with some dudes and this bombshell lady was in front, I don't know, large chested or what, but bent over and his friend didn't know Chris didn't know he was watching, but his friend was watching to see how he viewed this lady. And he said he, did, he, didn't, he didn't steer. And that got his attention because he was like, that's a dude I want to be like. Moral authority. That's moral authority. Moral authority is knowing yourself well enough to be honest. Like Jay Dorch, who was going a few years ago to a, a, a football reunion or something of that nature, and he was going without his wife. And he knew he was going to be an environment from his before Christ days. And he called Les Lala and he said, hey, I need you to call me at 9 o'clock, pretty much on the hour. And he says, if I don't answer, keep calling till I answer. That's moral authority. Moral authority won't necessarily get you promoted. It rarely, if ever, will make your life comfortable or easy. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, it's worth it. Joseph's life, Joseph's life tells us that. Number six, Joseph was faithful no matter what. In our guides, it says, we acknowledge that obedience to God will always cost us something. Let me remind us, Joseph's high school guidance counselor did not encourage him to pursue the career path of becoming a slave or a prisoner. Like that... That wasn't on his bucket list. Neither of these two things did Joseph set out to do or to become. But when we look at his life, it's obvious. He was faithful no matter where he was or what he was doing. It didn't matter. It didn't matter where he was. It didn't matter what he was doing. He was faithful no matter what. As a slave, he was faithful. As a prisoner, he was faithful. Now, you know how easy it would have been for Joseph, uh, who was already being faithful as a 17-year-old teenage boy, young man, to when his brothers tossed him into a pit and then sold him to gypsies? You know how easy that would have been to say, I'm out. If that's what being a Christian means, I'm out. Or if that's what being faithful means, I'm out. And then he becomes comes to Egypt where it's foreigner, foreigner in the land, and he's sold to this dude. Now he's a slave. Like, 
You're not just a slave for six months. You're a slave because you're bought. How easy would that have been? Dude, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out. I'm not being faithful anymore. But then because he's faithful, he's thrown into prison because he's faithful. He gets falsely accused. How easy would that have been? Like, I'm done. I'm out. But not Joseph. He was faithful even when everything about his life was unfair. Potiphar bought him, verse 1. Verse 20, so Joseph was there in prison. Joseph's faithfulness opened the door for this last thing we can learn from Joseph's morality, and that is that Joseph's obedience welcomed God's favor. Joseph's obedience welcomed God's favor. Now, this is important. I, I've read this passage a lot of times, but if I'm not careful, I, I can accidentally compartmentalize the significance here. God's favor was revealed in the middle of Joseph being wronged by his brothers, by Potiphar's wife. Joseph's favor was revealed in the middle of him being a slave. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Verse 3, the Lord made everything he did successful. Verse 5, the Lord blessed uh, Potiphar's house because of Joseph. He was also... Um, God's favor was revealed for him as a prisoner. Verse 20, 21, so Joseph was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Verse 23, the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything that he did successful. It was about three years ago, there was a a brand new believer guy um, that I was spending some time with and he had gotten fired from a really uh, good paying job. And I was needing to deliver this um, oven that was donated to this single mom down in Portland. And I knew he was out of a job. And I said, hey, man, I said, I said why don't you come with me? I need to go pick it up, deliver it. And so we got to spend a couple hours together. And I'm sitting there listening to this guy. And he says, he says, Ronnie, he goes, man, he goes, I'm frustrated. And I'm, you know, all this stuff. But he said, and then he said this. He said, but I know that me getting fired means that God has a better job for me. I'm driving the box truck, and I was like, bro, that's not the gospel. That's man-made. That's not true. I said, now selfishly, I hope God gives you a better job and bless your socks off, but guess what? That might not happen. You might have to downsize your lifestyle. You might have to move out of that nice granite countertop apartment to a cheap apartment. You might have to sell that fancy car and get a Dave Ramsey beater. That's not the gospel. And if we're not careful, we can accidentally, men, turn the truth of the gospel into sounding like this. If you have restraint, if you are trustworthy, if you run from sin, if you run um, from sin to honor God, if you run from sexual immorality, if you are faithful, if you possess moral authority, and if you are obedient, then God will bless you and protect you from hard times. And your life's just going to be like rainbows and butterflies as long as you do those things. Fellas, that... That is, that's blasphemy. That is not the gospel. 
just like I told Brad. A full disclosure, for the, for the past 15 plus years, I have been referring to these things that we see on the highway called guardrails. I've been referring to guardrails. I think I heard it first from a communicator, Andy Stanley, and it really stuck. I'm like, man, that's so helpful terminology. But you know what? I looked it up yesterday and I realized that's technically not it. It's not guardrails because here's why I say this. I looked it up. The purpose of a guardrail is a, sa- a guardrail is a safety barrier intended to shield a motorist who has left the roadway. Fellas, we're not here at Man Challenge focusing on guardrails. Instead, we're trying to stay on the straight and narrow road. That leads to life. Let me ask you this question. You ever heard this sound? This is Man Challenge, let's be honest. How many of you, that was a reminder to open your eyes while driving at night, right? Yeah, you know what those things are called? They're called rumble strips. Man, I've been driving and not paying attention, talking to my kids or Tish before, and then all of a sudden, right? You, you don't not catch that. They're rumble strips. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of a rumble strip is a road safety feature to alert inattentive drivers of potential danger by causing a vibration and audible rumbling. Fellas, that is what we're talking about. You don't have to call your insurance guy and make a claim for hitting a couple rumble strips, right, Carl? But let me tell you something. You hit a guardrail going 75 mile an hour, or or I mean 65 mile an hour, (laughs) you will have to make a claim for that. Think rumble strips. Moment of truth. To have a woman pursue you, puff you up, and in clear terms say, I want you. I don't care about your wedding ring or a relationship. You can have your way with me. You can do whatever you want to me. And I'm in. It's a rare man, married or single, that can resist her day after day. And here's the moment of truth. If you're getting close enough to any woman, any woman, close enough to any woman to know if she is infatuated with you or if she looks longingly at you, listen to me. You have driven, there's no, you're way past that. In fact, you're over the guardrail. In fact, you're, you're pushing those you love over the guardrails if you're close enough to a woman to know that. It's true whether you're married or single. And I can't help but wonder if some of you guys, the only thing that is between you and sexual sin is an invitation based on your life having zero rumble strips in place and zero men, even at Man Challenge, knowing where you need some rumble strips. None, no one in your life who is in the passenger seat saying, hey man, rumble strips. In just the past few years, and it pains me to say this, there have been four very well-known megachurch pastors who have experienced moral failure 
Now, I don't know any of these four guys personally, but I can guarantee you that none of them had any rumble strips in place that they were living by. I've been married to Tish. June 24th will be 23 years. I love her more today than I did back on June 24th of 2000 when I said I do. But you want to know something that's true about me? I am 100% capable of cheating on my wife. This is why I have instilled multiple rumble strips because I need them. I need them. And I need other dudes in my life that know my rumble strips. That's why I've instilled them. Everyone eventually gets tired driving or distracted with phone calls or text messages. It happens to all of us. So I ask the following question to men who have, uh, I'm going to wrap up with this. I ask the following question to multiple men who all have at least two things in common. One is they are professed Christian men, and two, they possess what I would call moral authority. I asked them these questions. What are two to three rumble strips? Full disclosure, I said, what are two to three guardrails? And then yesterday, I was like, it's not about guardrails, it's about rumble strips. All right, I asked them, what are two to three rumble strips you have in your life as it relates to interacting with the opposite sex? I want to tell you who I asked, and I got permission from all these guys, but for time purposes, I'm just going to say, man, I asked our former senior pastor, Dave Stone. I asked our current senior pastor, Kyle Eidelman. I asked his dad, Ken Eidelman. I asked Carl Cool from our senior leadership team. I asked Jason Chambers, the chairman of our elders. I asked multiple other elders. I asked Kurt Souter. I asked Bill Clark and other deacons. I asked CEOs. I asked business owners. I asked dentists. I asked pharmacists. I asked man challenge table leaders. I asked single guys. I asked married guys. I asked... Uh, dads, grandpas, guys who have cheated on their wives, guys who have been sexually promiscuous, guys who were virgins when they got married, guys who struggle with lust, and also guys who struggle with lust. And through the detail of their answers, though the details were, were different, you want to know the strangest thing I didn't hear from one single guy? I don't need any rumble strips. I'm going to read several of their answers. But before I do, I want to lay some ground rules. One is it's really important to understand that these are personal practices and not intended to be legalistic rules. And the other thing is if you are dead set on pursuing evil and sexual sin, there's no rumble strip, there's no guardrail that will keep you from having your way. So this is assuming we all want rumble strips in our life. You still, uh, you may want to jot some of these down. I broke it down into different categories. Texting. My wife and I include each other on a text whenever it's with someone of the opposite sex. I don't text a woman before 9 a.m. or after 5 p.m. other than my wife, mother-in-law, mom, daughters, and sisters, or sisters. No pictures to the opposite sex, period. Social media, I don't follow any women at all. I don't DM any woman at all. I have several people reading who I DM on social media. Phone, I lock... I have a lock on my phone and my iPad, which my wife and accountability partner have the code. It's in settings. My wife and I share calendars and locations on our devices. I don't take my phone into the restroom. Passwords. My wife has access and passwords to everything, phone, email, social media, movies. I always check if a movie has nudity before and won't watch it if it does. (laughs) Notable exception, 
Braveheart because I know where it is and fast forward past it. It's, it's an important note. Work. My wife has Life 360 at all times. I'm usually not out after 10 p.m. on business trips. Handshakes and side hugs only and not if we're alone. If I meet a new woman as part of work, I bring up my wife and kids in conversations so they know my commitments up front. If meeting with coworker opposite sex or of opposite sex, I tell my wife when and have my assistant at her desk with my office door open. I pray prior to interacting with women in the course of, of my work day. At work, it's not always practical to have absolutes with my business. The majority of my employees are female, but I avoid being in a position where I'm alone in an environment where there are not others around. This comes from a friend who has a dental practice. I have my dental assistants first thing before I even walk in the room to put on a patient napkin that covers their entire chest. Way to go. Business travel. Will not travel alone. Always have accountability. Don't travel one-on-one -on -one with another woman. Never, ever be in a hotel room alone. When out of town or in a hotel, I ensure my community accountability fellows know. If I'm traveling, I never have a meal alone with a female, no matter what. Never ride an elevator alone with a woman. Driving, I do not ride alone in a vehicle with another woman. Meeting, I avoid being with any other woman, even in public places. I don't put myself in any position to be vulnerable with another woman. No emotional phone calls or time, ever. Will not counsel someone of opposite sex alone. Coffee and meals, no one, uh, no one-on-ones with, with a woman over coffee, lunch, or dinner. Parties, if I know I'm going to a party or reunion without my wife, I have my friend call me at specific times in the evening. Conversations, I never, ever flirt with a woman. Don't say anything to a female that could be taken out of context or misunderstood. Don't compliment another woman about their outward appearance. Never share personal information about your marriage. When talking to a woman, laser focus on their eyes and no other body parts. Be self-aware. Make my unconditional love for my wife publicly known. I never joke or diminish her, even joking around. Drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol with another woman is stupid for many different reasons. Don't do it. Never get wound up in social drinking late with men or women. If friends or old teammates are going out, I might go to dinner, but I will not go out to bars with them after dinner without my wife. Dating. Single guys. Never go into a woman's apartment, house, or hotel room, vice versa, on a date. Block numbers, then delete all hoochie mama contacts and phone. Good advice for a married man, too. On a date, don't pull up, pull down, unzip, untuck, unbutton, undo, unsnap, lay on, or under, or touch private parts, even over clothing. Any questions? Didn't think so. If you go home with wet drawers, you have crossed over a rumble strip. General rumble strips. If a blind lady could know if you are aroused, you are too close. Back it up. Ask yourself, would I want another man doing any of these things with my wife or my daughters? Accountability with one to two guys where I go that last 10% and ask a specific set of questions each week. I trust my wife's instinct. If she has a concern or feels like someone is flirtatious, even if I don't think so or agree, I run. Don't be on phone or internet after 9, 9 p.m. Don't 
be a bing bong. That pretty much covers everything we missed, all right? God doesn't need more ministers. He needs better men. Now, Joseph modeled morality very well. Jesus was the ultimate modeler of morality in ways that even Joseph fell short because he is our model. He's our guide. He's our why. So let's focus on that this morning. Father, thank you for these men. I pray during our team time that we would have courage to be honest about whatever area in our life, wherever it is, with whoever it is, we need rumble strips. God, I pray that you would use all of us, linking arms together, to help each other stay focused on the straight and narrow road that leads to life. Give us the courage to be marked as men who possess moral authority. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, men. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media. 